Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this conversation, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Luke, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Greenwich. I first encountered David's work a few years ago when I attended the Biennial Academic Conference, Breaking Convention, of which David is a co-founder, director and chair. As you may know, I speak at a lot of conferences for my work, and I was particularly struck by this one for their skill in weaving together different disciplines associated with the research of psychedelic substances, which is an area that is not only rich, but also very, very complex. Over the course of a few days, I encountered talks and presentations spanning everything from medicine, psychology and anthropology, to sociology, law, politics and the arts. And so I thought, who better to explore the theme of integration with than David? Having published more than 100 academic papers, including 10 books, David's work focuses on transpersonal experiences, anomalous phenomena and altered states of consciousness, especially those occasioned by psychedelics. When he's not running clinical drug trials with LSD, doing DMT field experiments or observing apparent weather control with Mexican shamans, he directs the Ecology, Cosmos and Consciousness Salon. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been following your work for a while. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a real pleasure to be here. My pleasure. And um, shout out to Sam Gandhi for putting us in contact because he is the one that put the connection together. And on the point of connection, I've been reading a lot recently about ideas around entanglement and the interconnectedness of all life and also what that looks like in terms of within the human species. And so I'd like to start with the question, what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Wow, that's a really deep question to just get started with. <laughs> uh, but I... I uh, yeah, well, where can we take that? I mean, there is a deep degree of, of interconnectedness and I think life and our psyches and 21st century living is becoming increasingly more complex and involved and interconnected and yet fragmented simultaneously, you know, interconnected by the wealth of different communication channels that we have and ways of relating, but also more fragmented by those very communication channels. And uh, we're in danger of also losing uh, a connection to our environment through the use of, of technology and social media and so on. Um, but we are lurching into ever-increasing complexity and interconnectedness, I, I feel. Um, I mean, two books immediately spring to mind when you when you talk about entanglement. And of course, it's used in, in a sense of 
quantum physics, but there's a great book by Dean Radin uh, called Entangled Life. Uh, sorry, Entangled Minds. I should talk. I should say uh, when he talks about uh, the extant research on psychic abilities, for want of a better term. Oh, interesting. And uh, how you know we've got to a point now where there is a, a good body of research to support the idea that we are all interconnected and in ways which go beyond our normally normal sensory abilities and the other book which i've been a massive fan of very recently is is uh, merlin sheldrake's entangled life mm. which i accidentally mentioned already <laughs> um <laughs> looking at all these kind of mycelial interconnections that go on not least with the the, the wood wide web and uh, all the fungus that exists within us and between us and sustains life in many many ways but also brings into play this idea of being lichenized how the increasing complexity of the living world as we understand it obviously it's always been extremely complex um but that there are new layers uh, upon layers of complexity that we're discovering how two different distinct species can come together and, and form a lichen uh, and bring together different elements of those two species and, and different skills and, and, and create a completely separate living uh, entity and yet then split apart again. And that even we have the kind of layers of complexity of, of organisms living within cells, much like our own mitochondria, but within those organisms we might find other organisms and inside those organisms we might find other organisms so we're moving towards increasing complexity all the time uh, and i can hear uh, your dog in the background what's his or her name oh yeah arwin she'd sneaked in oh, arwin. Uh, hi arwin welcome i forgot she was there she she's going to be in the kitchen <laughs> sorry <laughs> so go on with symbiosis i think what you're describing i mean humans and dogs in the best of scenarios kind of follow that route i think yeah, absolutely absolutely so in terms of entanglement i mean um you know as some quantum theories would have it everything is entangled with everything else and uh but on a kind of socio-cultural political spiritual level i think we're increasingly moving towards that uh, idea and and sense anyway um and yeah some of those ways in which we can explore that are on the psychic level and on the biological level but also the socio-cultural so speaking about the social cultural one of the themes or the key theme that i'm interested in exploring in this season is around integration and that means very different things in different contexts so i wonder from your perspective and your work as an academic as someone who dances at the fringes of what's perceived as acceptable perhaps within certain academic circles how do you conceive of integration within the personal, educational and cultural realms? So again, a, a beautifully broad uh, jumping off point there. But uh, I mean, most of my work around integration per se on a psychological level is, is dealing with how people integrate psychedelic experiences primarily and also what we might call exceptional human experiences, which is, is kind of my broader area of research. You know, those experiences which take us beyond our usual sense of self into connection with a deeper, broader other. Um, and how those experiences get integrated, uh, not just by the individual, but into society and the academy at large is, is a, a growing and curious question. Hmm. Um, you know, in my... Sorry, but I think my dog's now leaving. <laughs> Bye, Owen. <Alan. laughs> which is a good, which is a good thing. Um, <laughs> she got fed up of just listening to people chatting. <laughs> I know, I know, it's no fun. Um, 
Uh, but I think, you know, so in my line of work, I mean, I've, I've basically committed double career suicide by one investigating parapsychology mm-hmm. and the other with psychedelics. And, you know, in this current era, psychedelics are suddenly quite cool mm-hmm. and a bit of a hot button topic. And suddenly everybody wants to, to be in on the research or at least the funding for them. Uh, but you can see that there has been a shift, certainly within the academy in which I operate, that people are beginning to accept these dimensions a bit more openly uh, in the public-facing domain. Mm. You know, I think privately, I think people probably always had, in the majority, uh, a, a sense of support for these this realm of experience. And to give you an example. Um, <laughs> when I first started putting on the Breaking Convention Psychedelic Conference at our university with my colleagues, uh, it was it got a bit of a big splash across the the, the university webpage, and and I was kind of slightly terrified uh, about coming out, you know, with all my colleagues and what they would think and all the rest of it, putting on this huge psychedelic conference, and but I get this kind of knock at the door. After it went went live, and my colleagues would kind of look both ways first of all, and then <laughs> pop their head in and go, "Oh, this conference you're doing is it's really interesting." You know, did I ever tell you about the time that dot dot dot? As if they were the only person in the department who did that, and it turns out, you know, the majority of them would would I'd get that little knock on the door from. Um, so it's this kind of difference between these kind of public and private opinion. I think it's become more possible to have these kind of public interests and opinions, uh, certainly about psychedelics in old states, but even, you know, exceptional experiences or parapsychological phenomena are are still somewhat taboo. And why do you think that is? Because I think, you know, obviously, if we're looking at the research that's been happening since the late 90s in Europe and in the States and elsewhere, there's been a wealth of interesting studies looking at all sorts of different positive impacts of psychedelic plants, substances, etc., why do you think it's taken such a long time for the stigma around these themes to ease? And why is it that certain governments are still so hardline? Because I remember back in the day, I could go down to Camden, buy a bag of amazing, it could be Colombian or Mexican mushrooms, whatever, they'd tell you how to take it. And it was it was great. And um, suddenly all of that just got shut down. And then it was this big kind of stop sign. And now there's a lot of interest, I think, as you say, the interest never really left but there's still a lot of political resistance. Is that where the taboo still exists or is it more widespread than that, do you think? Well, that particular time in history in the UK when you could buy magic mushrooms in Camden (laughs) was a a, a kind of just a short cultural blip, really. I think actually, culturally speaking, you know, psychedelics were somewhere near the peak of their um, negative media uh, portrayal, mm. in fact, uh, <laughs> and somebody just discovered a loophole which meant you could supply fresh mushrooms as opposed to dry ones. And before you knew it, they were selling them in Chinese takeaways and shoe shops all along <laughs> Oxford Street. You know, <laughs> basically anywhere, anywhere, anywhere with a shop uh, was was selling magic mushrooms for a brief period of time. <laughs> and of course, well, it was completely unregulated, and and so it wasn't likely to last long. And yet, since that period, actually, we've seen this this move towards a, a more positive media portrayal of psychedelics. You know, the, the negative news stories stopped being interesting, uh, uh, probably on account of the fact that, you know, a lot of journalists and people in the media had, had had their own experiences and probably thought it was quite preposterous. Um, and we started to see uh, an influx of, of positive news stories covering the emerging science that was coming through 
uh, at the end of the the, the noughties and, and into the last decade. Uh, and, and that really started to change public opinion to the point where uh, earlier this year there was a YouGov poll and it turns out that the, that the majority of, of people in a national random survey in the country are in favour of drug policy reform mm. or at least discussing drug policy reform around the use of psilocybin uh, for clinical uses. Amazing. And so one of the things that these extraordinary plants and fungi can be used for is to shape or renew a person's experience of themselves in the world. So get people to experience things in a different way. And you have explored in various work the idea that altered traits can stem from altered states. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So I've worked broadly with all kinds of altered states of consciousness, but especially psychedelic ones. Often if we have a a profound experience in altered states, which they often are if you if you go big, so to speak, <laughs> that they can have long-lasting positive changes and effects on on not just your mood but on your personality. Um, so we find that you know obviously there's a lot of research and news attention around the idea of using psilocybin and other psychedelics to treat mood conditions like depression and anxiety. Um, but also we find that people who take psychedelics and have positive mystical experiences uh, tend to increase their openness to experience, for, in, for instance, in that they're more willing to engage in other cultural interests and practices, try different food, listen to different music, go to different <laughs> art exhibitions, all the rest of it. Mm. And also changes in people's attitudes and behaviours towards other people and the natural world. So mm. people engage in more pro-social behaviours that is, they become more empathic. They're willing to do things for other people. Um, they're more likely to increase their relationship to nature, their nature relatedness, and and um, take more of a care and concern for the natural environment. Spend more time in nature. Increase the amount of gardening they do, which is one of the findings I found. Um, Astonishingly, yeah, more than half of the people in one survey I did had taken psychedelics said it had increased the amount of gardening they do. We should have been a kind of headline news. Yeah, totally. That's one for Gardener's (laughs) World. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we see that these altered states can lead to altered traits uh, in positive dimension, primarily. And that depends on the, the nature of the experience. And of course, in the rare con- occasions, sometimes those altered states, if they are negative experiences, can lead to negative altered traits as well, that you mm. may have some kind of long-term psychological problems stemming from those experiences. But they're usually in, in the vast minority, but it can go both ways. Mm. It's interesting. I'm reading a book at the moment by a psychotherapist who works in psychedelic integration and actually has just written a new book called Psychedelic Integration. It's, it's a chap called Mark Ajala. And what's really interesting, he talks about what happens when the different levels of change or impact that psychedelic experiences can have don't get processed within the right time frame. So some of the emotional and psychological components that come up, maybe they need to be addressed in a very close time frame. You know, once you've just come out of the experience, so you're not sitting in difficulty. And then some of the other stuff can take longer. But it's so interesting hearing people talk about how even the most challenging or terrifying in some instances or fragmenting experiences can be supported people can be supported through them and again this this kind of question arises about how can we change the ways in which we create policies and support people to be able to move through these experiences in a way that is going to help them to flourish 
Um, I don't know if you have kind of thoughts on that before I open into the next question. No, I think that's a really uh, interesting point. I think I think we absolutely need to be doing research in this area and, and, and trying to better understand how we can maximise benefits and reduce harms uh, through the use of these profound altered states. Uh, one of the projects we're looking at currently is looking at challenging experiences and how people deal with that mm. um, because that, that's one of the areas which hasn't been looked into in, in massive depth but suddenly garnering a lot of interest so we actually have a, a survey out currently and we're looking for people to interview oh. as well about how they've dealt with challenging experiences i.e., those experiences which have have left a kind of psychological mark for more than uh, 24 hours after the experience um but i think that the fact that we are paying attention to how we integrate these experiences is is key uh, and that journey starts, of course, with before you take the psychedelics with the preparation uh, uh, you, you engage in and your intentions and how you come to the experience as well as factors of set and setting, uh, so on, you know, the environment in which you do it and the, the mental framework you're in when you take them. So paying attention to those factors increasingly, I think, is important. Um, and there are many ways in which we can integrate. You know, there's no one one tried and tested method. Mm. I think that's one of the things that's most concerning is the idea that, well, on the one hand, the sort of the standardization of these compounds by pharmaceutical companies that then want to take out specific bits. And so you end up losing the cultural and I guess synergistic aspects of how the plant works in its entirety and how it works within a specific culture. And then the flip side, which is the standardization of protocols that then don't actually serve all the people outside of that middle tranche of the the curve of distribution. Just so kind of be able to maintain that openness, which is obviously something that can arise from the experience itself, while we're actually working with people, so that you can be guided by their own context and experience and needs. No. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, yeah, a move towards a kind of standardisation is 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 somewhat terrifying in this regard. But I think the idea is that that there should be some means of working with integration that's the important thing and you know the, the many different ways of doing that uh, worse than that you know through the kind of the standardization of, of these substances and the extraction of the kind of pure chemicals and tweaking them uh, in many ways is the search to try and deliver non-psychedelic psychedelics oh, which, which i find <laughs> uh deep deeply interesting uh which we know which is you know darpa for instance in the states have just pumped 23 million dollars into doing research in this area in the quest to find chemicals like psychedelic chemicals which seemingly affect the same parts of the brain but in a way which doesn't give you a psychedelic experience in the hope that they will be as effective uh in in treating clinical conditions like depression anxiety and so on um, without giving people a psychedelic experience do you think they're missing a massive trick (laughs) yeah no you're absolutely right i mean i think I mean, I'm half tempted to rush down to the bookies now and say, I just don't think this is going to work, guys. I mean, just like part of the thing is actually having a psychedelic experience. Like, no, it's like if if you're able to take sugar, and I understand that not everyone can, but if you're able to have sugar and then someone does like a chocolate cake without sugar, I'm like, give me the freaking chocolate cake with all of the sugar. I'll just get fat for a while. It's fine. Like, why would you want to remove all the really... Like, you're kind of taking the soul out of the thing. Maybe that's a bit extreme, but, like, that's, I don't know. I On a, on a deep level, that just feels off. 
yeah. to me. Most people have that reaction when you tell them about it. Um, and, you know, you can see how it could work for those kind of sugar-free or psychedelic-free yeah. people who, who really can't tolerate it. But it's kind of also back to the old school model of just here, take this drug, you won't have to do anything and you're just going to get better. The drug will do all the work for you, you know, mm. uh, like we have with kind of antidepressants currently, which are kind of mm, somewhat mm. doomed to failure. Um, and I think it's just that whole approach is is pretty preposterous, <laughs> not least because it looks like having a profound psychedelic experience is, is really key to having the better clinical outcomes. But maybe also that's um, the part which is so threatening as well. I mean, I think if we're talking about ways in which people can profoundly change, if they work with whatever insights or experience they have and they, they enact changes that are going to help them flourish in day-to-day life because obviously the experience is the experience but if you don't do anything with it it's not guaranteed that it's going to have any long-lasting change so if you don't even offer people that chance (laughs) i don't see much benefit no Uh, sure but so (laughs) (laughs) but let's talk a bit about the current overarching system of human civilization being quite extractivist and we're, we're locked into this very complex and um quite destructive system if we're thinking about it from the perspective of economics from uh, the way that we get our food our fuel etc and we're kind of on a collision course I think most people would probably agree with that right now what role do you think entheogens can play in reconnecting us into ourselves as part of the wider web of life and where does that lead us in terms of protecting what we then come to remember that we love that's a quite a leading question, I think. No, well, I think you know where I'm likely to go with it, so that's okay. But yeah, I think <laughs> I, th- I think antigens do have a role to play in all of this. I mean, they're not the kind of magic bullet solution to all of our ecological problems, but I think they can certainly play a role in that. You know, the research has shown that they do tend to make people feel more connected to the natural world. Um, actually, 100% of people in my survey taking psychedelics said taking psychedelics and make them feel more connected to nature. So there you go. That's that's <laughs> pretty high kind of outcome rate, I would say. And that the majority of those people also felt more concerned for the environment. So if you change people's attitudes, it'll help change their behaviours. They'll take more care of their environment. And this has a kind of positive feedback loop effect in that um, people who are more concerned and take more care of the environment are going to enhance the environment for everybody else. And actually more time spent in, in nature is, is kind of better for everybody's well-being, uh, particularly if it's if it's a less degraded environment. So, you know, it's not just a benefit for the environment. It's a, it's a kind of feedback loop benefit for, for everybody uh, on, on a kind of well-being level. So I think there's a role for psychedelics, A, first of all, in connecting people, uh, B, in in the interaction between the use of psychedelics and and psychotherapy and that we should be moving towards a more kind of nature-based psychotherapies uh, and integration of psychedelic experiences, which would probably have the beneficial effect of increasing our connection to nature even more and having this whole extra feedback loop loop of well-being. That they may help people who have kind of ecological activism burnout uh, for instance in particular or people who are, are dealing with the you know depression anxiety around ecological crisis and disaster um in that they, they may have a special place in helping people feel that actually you know trust in nature and we'll be okay 
And then finally, and I think this is an area which hasn't really been looked into very much, but I've been interested in the use of, of antigens and psychedelics for creative problem solving. And we've done a lot of research with top level scientists, for instance, giving them psychedelics to, to create a problem solve their technical and theoretical problems, you know, right at the cutting edge, you know, from, yeah, kind of people working on Higgs boson or kind of higher dimensional mathematicians and so on. And one of the participants in our study, which we haven't fully published yet, was uh, Merlin Sheldrake, who, as I mentioned, published this book, Entangled Life. And what's interesting about Merlin's experience, which he talks about in the first chapter of the book, where he took LSD for creative problem solving, his PhD conundrum, which was, <laughs> what is the nature of the relationship between this fungus and a plant, which are always kind of found together? Is it parasitic or is it symbiotic? And you can read his book to find out his, his ideas. But the point was, under the influence of LSD, he had the experience of of turning into the fungus. Mm. And we were watching him. He, he didn't actually, so I'm not <laughs> sure about that. But, but he had the experience of being the fungus growing inside the rootstock of, of the plant. Amazing. And this kind of changed his whole perspective, not just on his PhD problem, but on biology and how we do science. And that, you know, we can look at it from a non-human perspective right and that we can have an experience of seeing the these problems old problems from a, the perspective of a different species and it gives you a whole nother look on things um and i think that that could be really key in dealing with these environmental and ecological problems i mean this is something that indigenous amazonians have kind of do naturally right it's it's embedded within uh Amerindian cosmology and it's it's what the the anthropologist Eduardo Rivera of the Castros calls perspectivism which is you know indigenous peoples of of the Americas traditionally if you want to understand something you want to know what something's useful for or what its benefits are is you, you you try your best to become that thing you know to get into the mindset of it it's kind of knowing by becoming which is a completely uh, and antithetical epistemology mm. to what we have in the West of let's try and detach ourselves as much as possible from the yeah. thing we want to understand and try and you know desiccate it and slice it and measure it and try and be as objective mm. as possible, which is of course completely impossible. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it has it leads to this kind of divorcing of yourself from the things you are trying to understand and very much part of the materialist reductionist endeavor which is also kind of somewhat parallel to this kind of materialist perspective about the way we treat the natural resources of the world you know they're just there to be kind of dissected and desiccated and used and extracted and all the rest of it so we can see how this kind of creative problem solving with entheogens with psychedelics could lead to more ecologically orientated solutions to ecological problems which are from a non-human perspective, right? Because we, we're still stuck in our, oh, how's it going to benefit us kind of perspective. It's like, you know, you know we're all in this together. Mm. And that's what we find from indigenous shamanic worldviews is that we are not apart from nature. We are part of nature. And, and, and I think psychedelics can have a role in shifting that perspective and, and helping us come to a, a new way of, of, of doing science or of kind of problem solving existing issues you know by being hyper subjective by trying to become the other thing as well as being objective and using our 
empirical science too. Um, and, I, and I'll just wrap this up, but in one survey you found that, I love statistics, 25%, and they're not all made up on the spot, 25% <laughs> of people in our survey who'd taken ayahuasca said they'd had this experience of changing into another species. So it's something that's very common to psychedelic experiences, but isn't always necessarily what you read on the tin when you go off on your ayahuasca retreat. Mm. It's interesting. It raises a couple of things in my mind. So the first one is when people, and you read this in older anthropology texts, when people report that when they've met people from indigenous cultures who work with plants and have a long history of relating to other beings in their community, non-human beings, they'll just say, well, the plants told us or showed us. And there's this kind of disbelief that we have that there could be any other perspective we could inhabit other than our own. And yet, of course, if you go far enough back through lineages that are still intact of storytelling. So for instance, Sharon Blackie, who's one of my favourite mythologists, psychologists, she talks a lot about Celtic traditions and shape-shifting beings and women who become selkies, who are these sort of... Um, seals. Seals, that's it. But so there, there's kind of a rich history. We don't have to travel far to exotic places to discover this sense of reconnection. It's, it's their way back somewhere. And so kind of on that note, one of the things that's a little bit more... Intrig I mean, it's all intriguing, but particularly <laughs> piqued my curiosity was the fact that you're also known for exploring apparent weather control with Mexican shamans. <laughs> I totally want to hear about that. Uh, do you want to talk about it a little bit? I mean, I can do, uh, uh, other than say <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got very far with it as yet, other than kind of observing a few mind-blowing uh, incidents. Um, wait, wait, let's hear some of those. Well, I can tell you about that. I mean, the, the project, I got a small grant to pursue this, which I haven't actually adopted as yet because, yeah, uh, still in the kind of post-pandemic uh, era and other other projects kind of took over. But the, there is a there is a plan at some point to, to get this underway where we would um, do some kind of empirical research, exploring something that Indigenous people the world over often say is that, you know, they have certain people in their communities who, whose job it is to make it rain and they can do that somewhat at will if they make the right propitiations and do the right mm. kind of rituals and offerings and things like that. Uh, and then we can, we can test that empirically that, you know, that's we can say, OK, they say it's going to rain tomorrow in this place at this time and we can check our... Um, weather charts and algorithms and see what the probability is of it actually raining in that place. So that's the kind of planned empirical project. Uh, and I was hoping to do this with uh, the Baradico, which are indigenous group of people from a nation of people from Mexico who've been using peyote, we believe, in that region for thousands of years, most likely, uh, in this kind of shamanic tradition. And they also, you know, profess to change the weather. Um, and on meeting them one time, we, we were going up there to uh, go on a pilgrimage with them where they go and pick the peyote and we kind of turned up with our, with our well, the indigenous shaman we were working with and he was there to meet the rest of his kind of, kind of ceremonial team uh, from his clan and uh, they all kind of met. And they immediately got to arguing. We were just kind of standing there <laughs> next to our pickup truck, kind of waving, hoping to introduce ourselves. And they were just completely ignored. And they were just all kind of started arguing. And then, but behind them, whilst all this was happening, this huge dust devil got going in, in the field behind them. Um, 
which was, you know, a couple of hundred feet high as far as I could work out and 30 to 40 feet across or whatever. It was massive. And uh, no, bigger than that, uh, I would say. Actually, probably more like that, but in metres. It was huge. And <laughs> it just sucked up all these kind of maize leaves and it was kind of, and it was starting to move in our direction. Oh, no. And it wasn't very far away. You're and like, like, guys, oh, shut wow. up, stop arguing. <laughs> Well, exactly that. And I was like, I was, and at one point it was getting so close. It was like, I had to interrupt them. And I was like, hey, look behind you, you know. And they just turned around and they were just completely nonchalant about it. They were like, oh, surprise. But then, hmm. And like a couple of them gestured with their hands to kind of shove it out of the way. They kind of, they kind of just moved it. Like, you know, they gestured with their hands to move it out of the way. And then it's instantly changed direction and kind of went round us in this arc in the direction they were seemingly shoving it. And they just passed round us, got to the back of us and then carried on going in the direction it, it was originally no. going in. And it was like, what, did, did they just do that? We're all looking at each other, you know, did, did you see that? Yes, like, we're all in absolute astonishment. They didn't miss a beat, however. They were just back to arguing instantly. <laughs> as soon as they, like gestured for it to move they, that's so they human even, yeah oh. they were like oh yeah whatever big dust up wow. anyway as i was saying <laughs> so did you get to meet them in the end did they did they finally resolve that <laughs> uh yes they did we, we all yeah we all got to go on the pilgrimage together and that was the very start of it and we were like oh my god what what could possibly happen next if that's you know the first five minutes um but it wasn't quite as exotic as that actually <laughs> i think it was just <laughs> You know, we're just letting us have a bit of a tease, I think. So you've also done some interesting DMT field experiments. Um, can you tell us a bit about those? Are you at liberty to discuss them? Yes. And again, I haven't fully published. This is the kind of story of my life. I haven't fully published all the findings from this uh, work yet. But um, yeah, so this was kind of to basically inform and complement a lab-based research project we're going to be doing and collaborating on at Imperial uh, and we're looking at the nature of people's kind of exceptional experiences with DMT not least encounters with entities which are very common experiences at high doses um, and then I was also interested in some of the kind of other exceptional phenomena like you know people seemingly having shared visionary experiences or transcending time and space and bringing back information which seemingly uh, could either predict the future or um, had elements of telepathy in it or whatever. So we set up a whole number of experiments doing this where we went around to people's houses uh, when they were smoking DMT and uh, just conducted our research there, you know, the kind of kind of classic field research kind of way. Um <laughs> So, you know, we'd, we'd give people a whole bunch of psychometric measures like you do and, and interview them immediately after their experience, but also had to these kind of tasks they would do as well. And we found some really interesting stuff, which I'm not fully at liberty to kind of divulge as yet because we haven't published it yet. But uh, that was basically the plan. Um, yeah, we looked at uh, precognition, uh, shared visionary experiences, insight, uh, in much the same way we'd done with our creative problem-solving study with... with um, scientists and also the nature of their entity encounters as well uh but yeah i can't say too much other than it was fascinating and where is it likely to get published so that when it is out if people are interested they can read some more or do they just need to watch the space well this is an interesting question you know it depends which journals willing to stick their neck out and, yeah. and publish it really uh because it's quite controversial stuff. It's not. Mm. It's not the kind of stuff you're supposed to do as a scientist mm. if you want to get published. Um, 
which is, you know, a sad indictment of, of where we are in terms of like the sociology of science is probably more damning and telling about human condition than is the actual science in many ways. It's like, you know, as a scientist, you're only allowed to ask certain kinds of questions or you're supposed to be asked. Are you meant to be open-minded and, you know, pushing boundaries and all the rest of it, but there are still areas of, of the scientific endeavour which are taboo. And you can see that because nobody actually does research in those areas, right? Unless you want to commit career suicide. <laughs> Let's go for a third. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so with your work and with the crises that we're facing, um, I'd love to get your take on what you conceive of or envision as a flourishing future for humanity and for our planet and all the beings on it yeah i think and uh, i mean th there's much could be said on this but i think that there is something that we can learn from uh indigenous people uh if you want to call them that uh people around the world who have traditional magico spiritual practices and beliefs that we might call shamanic or animist um in that they have a deep connection to the natural world and to nature that they usually operate in a striving for harmony with the natural world and that they often do that through a, a kind of system of reciprocity mm -hmm. in that you know they they never take without first giving i.e. be in the form of offerings or whatever. Um, they never take without asking uh, that they have some kind of direct communication with nature and that they never take more than they need. Mm. Um, I, I was on a panel recently and it was one of these, you know, emerging pharmaceutical psychedelic companies. Well, they, they, they basically, you know, funneled funding into these companies, but they, they kind of gave them a you know, an ecological credential check first and said, well, you have to be putting something back to the indigenous communities and all the rest of it. And somebody said to me, well, you know, how do you think the indigenous communities would respond to that? And I said, well, I can't speak on their behalf, but it, it's it's completely alien to them, right? They, they would go and collect their psychedelic plants directly themselves with offerings and songs and you know, in, in only taking as much as they needed. And, and to have something even vaguely resembling that kind of approach, you'd have to look at all the resources being used by the particular pharmaceutical laboratory. You know, it's not just the production of the psilocybin, but where they source their chemicals from, where the, where the materials for the lab was made, yeah. you know, where, how the people get to work. You know, we have to think of the whole chain of action mm. that goes into kind of the production of this molecule and, and how that fits with 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 uh, the natural world and uh, you know it's like so we're a long long way from that and I think uh, we can't become you know we can't just regress into being hunter-gatherers because you know there's six or seven billion people on the planet there's not really enough room for us all and to do that but we can be kind of kind of become like future primitives in a way it's like we can build better zoos for ourselves you know we could ones in which uh, the animals within it are are within their most natural kind of habitat and environment that there, we have a kind of connection to all the complexity of nature as we as we fit into it uh, and that we you know we live as part of nature not apart from it I think that's the only way we can hope to to kind of move forward and flourish uh, and that's going to be better for our kind of psychological well-being um 
and socio-political interactions and all the rest of it. You know, if, if we if we treat our natural environment and nature and our relationship to the natural world in a system of reciprocity and respect, and that includes the people in it as well, then that way we will f- flourish and thrive, uh, even with six or seven billion people on the planet. That's no small feat, for sure. <laughs> we were talking about systemic transformation, which starts from, I think, at some level, like a cultural shift, which means there has to be a personal shift to want to connect with people, talk about things. I think that's happening, but... I wonder if there are any tools or practices that have been valuable to you in getting to that point of view, actually, and getting that sense of reciprocity being important, connection being important, that you could recommend that other people check out if they're interested in that? Um, Only through, you know, my work with Indigenous people, primarily with 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 Radhika, but also, yeah, just sitting in ceremony with people, being in community, uh, I think all those things are important. And, and having these journeys into what states, that's how I've come to learn to do it. I'm not saying that's the only way. There's many ways. And as you point out, you know, uh, the, it's, it has to start at the personal level. and then it, But it can't just end at the personal level, you know. It's like any kind of spiritual practice without some kind of activism can easily descend into kind of mystical nasal gazing. (laughs) And uh, any kind of activism, whatever its beneficial purpose, without some kind of spiritual connection, it just very easily descends into politics. And and I think, you know, we have to have have a bit of both. It has to be kind of inwardly and externally kind of focused spiritual action, whatever, however you want to interpret, you know, spiritual, but that we, we move forward with a with a sense of connection and a sense of who we are and what we are um, in the world. And so finally then, when you come across really challenging periods of life or things go wrong or people (laughs) kind of look at you and go, oh my God, you're barking up not even the wrong tree, but the wrong forest, (laughs) (laughs) which I imagine might have happened uh, with the kind of exploratory work that you do. How do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days? Thank you for that question. Well, actually, I don't don't tend to have those kind of challenges in my professional life. Um, Curiously, you know, people either just ignore my work or or they kind of tend to like it. Um, But nobody tends to challenge me much, which is a bit disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) I would like more challenge. Uh, but on my dark days, which I have many of, uh, especially recently when everything seems to have been going wrong, how do I find hope? I, I, I go and spend time in, in the forest, you know. I, I go and spend time in nature. I just try and reconnect. And, yeah, I think just time spent in nature is, is deeply nourishing and it reminds us of who and what we are and, and, and makes us feel humble and interconnected. And, and I think when we remember those things, our, our own personal problems can seem a bit more trivial and um, yeah, so that helps. Hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. If people want to find out more about you, what are the best places to find you? Um, you can find me on my university webpage, the University of Greenwich. I've got all my papers always on academia.edu uh, with links to all my books. And I often found uh, roaming around on social media on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, but as as little as possible. Mm. I try and avoid them as much as I can. Well, David, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really fun. Thank you for the interview. I've, I've really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.